Ready graphics? Ready theme? I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown podcast. Decided that this ending is like a Russian nesting doll. But Efron didn't believe him because she was a boss. So long, gold medal surfer. What happened to the Library of Alexandria? Tell the story, it's the best. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season two, episode 23, Frank's appendectomy. Guys, it's Lauren. Before we start, just want to say we had some technical issues with my end of the conversation for the beginning of the episode. So apologies for that. Enjoy. Welcome to Welcome and Hello, the last Norm Gunsenhauser, Tom Seeley episode for a number of years. Yes, I realized that as I was watching the credits scroll by on this one, I was like, oh my gosh, I re- I'm realizing where we are in the season and what that means for these beautiful yeah. writers. Now, the good news is, is that we actually interviewed Norm several years ago, right after the revival, before he... Uh, went back to L.A. We just haven't had a chance to air it because obviously we thought we would be farther into season two. And he's going to talk about not only season two, but sort of the highlights of his first couple of years at Murphy. It's a really good interview. It's a really good. I'm actually secretly kind of glad that we didn't release it yet because now I'm excited to listen to it in conjunction with. Yeah, this. that was such a wonderful conversation. It was a really great conversation. And in fact, he told us why it's called Frank's appendectomy. Nailed it. Proud of you. Thank Thank you. But we're going to save that for you to tune in on the next episode and listen to why Norm and Tom named it this episode. I, when it was starting and I was rewatching it, I had this moment when I became, you know, like the trivia nerd where I was like, oh my gosh, there's totally a story that I know about why. And then it hit me. It's because I did an interview with the writer (laughs) and that's why I know that story. Uh, It aired April 9th, 1990. And uh, the music is Give Me a Sign by Brendan Wood, who I I had never heard of. I feel foolish, but I hadn't. Had you, Jesse? No, I was looking at it. I, I knew you were doing the the music for this episode, so I hadn't gotten to a deep dive because I like to be surprised. Uh, but I remember I saw the name Brendan Wood, and I was like, I feel like I should know that. Like, that's a unique enough name. I'm actually very surprised that I don't know more. Yes. Well, he's not a Motown artist. I think that's also probably reason why we might not be as familiar. Now, he was born Alfred Jesse Smith in Shreveport, Louisiana. But shortly as a child, his family moved to California. So he's really a California person. He attended Compton College. And he was a really accomplished piano player. Sam Cooke was his hero. But he changed his name to Brendan Wood because he lived in Wood County. I thought it was really interesting. So it's sort of mm. a tribute to, you know, where he's from. He was a member of the Quotations at Compton College. Next, he was a member of Little Freddie and the Rockets, who did record a song called All My Love on something called the Chief Label in 1958. But all of his other songs, I honestly had never heard of. Uh, he did have a big hit um, when he signed in 1967 with Double Shot Records called the, and I'm going to say it wrong because I don't know the song. It's the Oogum Boogum song. Yeah, Oogum Boogum. Yeah, I just, I feel bad. I, I, this is the first, I'm learning all this information. So this song really. It's such a cool name. It was a big hit and it was interesting. And so the record label was like, you should come up with another sort of catchy name song. So he came up with the song, Give Me a Little Sign, which I think is self-explanatory. It's really sort of based on a lot of breakups with uh, his girlfriend and sort of pleading to her, you know, to give her a sign that things weren't as they should be. 
And uh, it actually went to number nine on the Billboard charts and was 19 on the R&B charts in 1967. And as I mentioned, was his biggest hit, but he never really was able to kind of get back to the same heights as he had with his first sort of two songs with this label. Uh, He's still alive today. He's still singing. Just one of those people who kind of had a bit, I hate to call him a one hit wonder because he's like a two hit wonder, but a song that we all know, but unfortunately we don't know the artist behind it. Hmm. Shall we start the episode? Let's do it. So we open on what I would call sort of a parade of secretaries in personnel just sitting at a desk. We don't know any of these people. They could be extras. They might even be crew members. But there is Except one. For one. There's one that you may not recognize, but we recognize. and hope- That very special smile that we know. Yeah, and hopefully you know because you listened to our first interview with Mr. Norm Gunsenhauser, the co-writer of this episode, and you've seen his picture on our website. But one of the secretaries is Norm Gunsenhauser. My favorite part about seeing that is I knew it. Like, I, I had known this cameo was there. I, for, of course, then forgot about it as soon as I started watching. But what I love is it's so clearly Norm. Yeah. And his sweet smile that is just so, so evocative of his spirit that the second I saw him sitting in that chair, I was like, Norm! Like, I was so happy to see him. See, when I watched this episode in preparation for our interview with Norm, I had not seen this opening ever. It was cut from the syndication oh. cuts that I had. I watched the first run syndication were the copies that mm. I had the most of, and I had never seen this scene, so it was very surprising. Now, if anyone is looking for Norm when you're watching the episode, it's right under Faith Ford's name. That would be Norm. He's very mm. tall. He's tall. He's got glasses, right? Yes. And, and uh, wearing a plaid shirt. We go into the bullpen. Murphy is wearing this fantastic olive and purple. Mm-hmm. I, I love it. Um, and she is telling her secretary, Linda. The secretary has a name. She has a name. Well, I mean, we're going to get into it, but this is the only secretary until we get to maybe Pee Wee Herman. Yep. Who really has to do with the plot. Yes. Of course, we had Robert from season one. <sighs> who was probably just as important as Linda, but he really didn't figure into the plot. No. No. So this is this is a big deal. And a, a wonderful actress who we will get to when we get to her, because I know Jesse has some mm-hmm. cool stuff to say. But she's, she's a bit of a scatterbrain, definitely a Gracie Allen type. Mm-hmm. And she's telling Linda Murphy that that's not what she asked for. And she assures Murphy that she did exactly what she was told, you know, to send a report to editing and confirm her flight to Nebraska. But no, she was supposed to send her receipts to auditing and confirm her flight to Nicaragua. You want (laughs) me to change it? (laughs) Now, the way that Murphy says, yes, I want you to change it. I feel like that we should just drop in the clip and hopefully that we no one figures it out. And it's fair, fair share rule of a moment of a clip and we won't get in trouble because Mm -hmm. I can't even do it. I mean, it's just amazing, Murphy. I, uh, yes, I wanted to change. I mean, her head, this may not be one of my favorite episodes, even though as Jesse and I were talking before we started recording, I definitely enjoyed it a lot more. And I think it's a great episode than I remembered. Mm-hmm. But Candace is on her game in this episode. Yes. She is just Her reads on it. are solid. Oh, it's like any, when you think of like classic Murphy, like this is it. Like she's in the zone. She's mm-hmm. comfortable. It's really great. Yep. So 
uh, she's pretty much being Murphy. Uh, now, uh, Murphy goes into her office and then Frank enters from, um, I think we've decided it's sort of the viewing room. He's got an armful of tapes. Yep. And then who I'm referring to is Mr. Character Actor of the 1980s enters. Indeed. And this is someone named Graham Jarvis, who'll be playing a character called Newton Green. Or is he? Well, I, that's the thing. Like, I, I assume he's using his real name or is it a fake name? No, I think I think it's the fake name based on what Frank says later. Well, most people might know uh, Mr. Jarvis from Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, where he played Mary Kay Place's husband. But he's been on MASH and Mork and Mindy and Cagney and Lacey and Fame, Married with Children, Star Trek Next Generation, The X-Files, Six Feet Under. It's pretty spectacular he's always that guy he's done a lot of movies as well like the out of towners mm -hmm. he's always that guy exactly he's that guy so newton green in air quotes needs to talk mm -hmm. to frank but frank is very busy you know he's late for traffic school long story short uh he confesses to frank that he is deep throat mm -hmm. which just to remind our viewers at the time nobody knew who deep throat was yes we did not find out who deep throat was until 2005 Yes, and for anyone who is not up to date in their 1970s trivia, Deep Throat is the name given to the anonymous source that Woodward and Bernstein used to break the Watergate scandal, which brought down President Nixon. The more you know. Mark Felt, he is a former uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, associate director, was Deep Throat. 31 years after Nixon's resignation in 2005 and 11 years after Nixon's death, it finally came out. Now, here's what's interesting. It did not come out from him directly. By then he was suffering from dementia and he had previously denied being mm -hmm. deep throat, but a family attorney finally revealed it for him. He died three years later. Wasn't it Vanity Fair? Was Vanity Fair that broke the story? Or am I remembering that incorrect? Oh, I believe incorrectly? so. I'm trying to remember now. Yes, it was Vanity Fair. March thir May 31st, 2005, Vanity Fair reported. And later that day, Woodward Bernstein and Bradley release a statement through the Washington Post confirming that the story was true. And for those who may not know, Bradley is the editor at the time. Yes. Yeah. Now, I have a I have a special question for you. Oh, yay, special question. What is your favorite depiction of the Deep Throat conspiracy in uh, pop culture? See, this is hard because I know what yours is and you're going to hate me, but I've, I've never seen I Love Dick. It's just what called it Dick. Called? It's called Dick, sorry. I Love Dick, Dick. is a TV series. Um, <laughs> I've never seen it. <laughs> The idea that Deep Throat was two teenage girl dog walkers is everything to me. Now it's so good. I, I need need to see it. And every time yeah. you bring it up on the show, mm -hmm. I remind uh -huh. myself and I put it in my Amazon queue mm -hmm. and then I totally forget to watch but it. But the reason I ask is because there are so many. There are and so most many people yes. have learned because it's one of the first it's one of was. the modern yeah. Well, yeah, it's one of the modern cloak and dagger mysteries that just was revealed. Like just was revealed. I mean, I'm sure Somebody who was born in 2000 doesn't think it was just revealed because. But yeah, but for us, like my entire childhood, it was a thing was, of like, yeah. who was it? And so so just to list, like there are audio dramas. There are four films. There are games that talk about deeper. They're in literature in, in Terry Pratchett's Discworld novel, The Truth, there's a parody of Deep Throat. There are so many television episodes that reference Deep Throat. So, many. so most people, especially of our generation and even some Gen X, learned about Deep Throat because of reference in pop culture, oh, not totally. because of news. Totally, totally. And I, I think also what's interesting is that, and then it became a cliche of the mm -hmm. guy in the shadows yep. in, uh, I'm sorry, or under a garage, you know, giving someone special information. And now that's reminding me that in Trading Places, they do something as like a reference to that. 
You know, mm-hmm. now All the President's Men is one of my favorite movies. Yes. Uh, obviously, you know, uh, Hell Holbrook. Follow the money. Oh, well. uh, if anyone has not seen that movie, it's one. It's a great movie, and it's one oh. of the best uh, movies on journalism. I think I know a lot mm-hmm. of it's you know not one hundred percent true. And then I would mm-hmm. follow that up with the the Post, which is is I know not necessarily yeah. like like a great movie, but I really enjoyed the Post. I thought it was really yes. interesting. I feel like some of the mentions that stood out the most to me from my childhood was uh, there's an X File episode. Oh, of course there is. Oh yeah, about with Deep Throat. Obviously, uh, there's a Frasier episode that references there is? it. Uh, yeah, it's three days of the condo and Frasier goes into like an underground parking lot to, to meet a secretive informant. Oh, that's fantastic. And one of my favorite things that is just such a, I forgot about it until I was uh, researching this, uh, which is in Lois and Clark, the adventure, the new adventures of Superman, Perry White has a government contact called Sore Throat. <laughs> we should also remind people that Deep Throat was a porno. Yes. And, uh, the idea was that he was deep cover. So yeah, they thought that was a funny thing to Which, call Which that's one of my favorite parts of the movie Dick is they get the idea because one of the girl's brother is very into the porno. And so they say it as a joke because they're teenage girls and they think it's funny. Just a reminder that it was 31 years later when we finally found out. It was an entire lifetime yeah. later when people found out. So for a lot of people now we know it as William Mark Felt, better known as Mark Felt. But I still automatically assume we don't know like it is ingrained in my mind as a mystery and so it's very strange to talk about this thing that is now revealed like at three had they waited three more years they probably would never have confirmed it because they wouldn't have had the consent or they might have they might have just finally revealed it because he was dead but the idea that like they revealed it three years later he's dead i'm not saying that as a conspiracy i just yeah, mean yeah, like yeah. the idea that he almost lived out his life never revealing i mean it. there are lots of mysteries that everyone is probably dead and we'll never know the answers to Oh, a bunch. What happened to the Library of Alexandria? I need to know. I'm sorry. I'm still upset. Please continue. So Frank doesn't believe him. He doesn't believe that he tipped off Woodward and Bernstein into the breaking of the Watergate Hotel. I wrote, Frank is not here for this. He does not agree. He goes, listen, Mr. Throat. (laughs) In the revival, I think we find out that Frank worked with Bernstein at the New York Times, right? Like he references that Mm -hmm. he knows him and he had... When Avery is kind of talking about his experience and he's like, oh, well, I kind of already know the guy. Like, I, I real, just realized that now and I should have gone. It might have been Woodward. I forget which one worked at the Times. Well, I just love the implication in a moment that happens with Murphy, which is that Frank is Woodward's contemporary. Yeah. Like they call up Woodward. Exactly. You know? And like that idea of just those are those moments I find so delicious about the way this intersects with the real world and the the current events was the idea of like, of course, Frank, Frank's level of prestige in his field, of course yeah. he's on first name ba- basis with Bob Woodward. When they were both being nominated for Pulitzers together. I mean, not literally yeah. together, but around it's, the same time, you know? Yeah. But it's really fun to place the show and these characters in that world because we do see it when we have uh, guest stars like uh, someone we're going to talk yeah. about in a little while who uh, stopped by the show. But when we see them, we're like, oh, right, one of Murphy's contemporaries is this. But like, to be reminded, like, of course, yeah. So... Frank is saying to Mr. Throat, you know, why don't you go bother Woodward with this? And apparently Mr. Throat is angry at him because, you know, it's been 17 years. He had gallbladder surgery, not even a card. Having had gallbladder surgery, a card would be nice. Just saying. (laughs) And he said that, you know, he just he, he he wants to come clean and he wants to do it with Frank Fontana. He chose him. 
then uh but frank just doesn't want to hear it kind of laughs at him gets ready gets on the elevator and what is great is that as frank is on the elevator mr throat says to him he'd hate to see this turn into something that haunts you for the rest of your life if if someone wasn't already suspecting that Frank was being put up to something, that moment is so like, if you want to take Frank Fontana out, this is what you say. Like, in retrospect, I mean, like, of course Murphy yeah. fed him this line. I mean, spoiler, y'all. But, like, of course Murphy fed him this line because it is the way to hook Frank Fontana. Yeah, and then Frank just stands there holding the paper with the guy's information as the elevator <laughs> closes and Mr. Throat leaves. Uh, Murphy enters uh, with her purse, ready to go for the day. Happy to see Frank. She asks him if he wants to go get a bite to eat. Um, he can't, maybe another time. But you see, he's kind of dazed. You know, he's kind of replaying all the information in his head. And Murphy knows that something is wrong, you know, because the tips of his ears are all pink. <laughs> he just has this sort of gut feeling, you know, that that only once or twice in your whole career kind of feeling. And he can't say anything, but... Uh, but he says in that sort of, you know, Frank high voice that he does when he's a little, you know, anxious. Is, he goes, I think I found deep throat. It's such a great <laughs> phrasing for Joe. It's just, it's, it's sort of like Frank's vulnerability is when his voice raises like that. Mm -hmm. And Murphy mm -hmm. mocks him, literally mocks him that, of course, he found deep throat. You know, she's having dinner with the Loch Ness monster. And no, he's serious. Uh, but Frank decides to check it out. You know, they're, they're, they're going to call Woodward. So they all sit at the inner table and they just, and Frank actually goes through a Rolodex and finds the number, which I was like, oh, how quaint. He picks up the extension and mm -hmm. they listen together. Bob Woodward, please. Frank Fontana. While they're waiting, Frank confesses to Murphy that, you know, it's been a while, you know, ever since Bob seems to think he can beat him at racquetball. You can kind of tell mm -hmm. from Frank's and Murphy's face when Bob gets on the phone. Bob is sort of incriminating himself and he asks outright, is this deep throat? And Frank repeats that Bob cannot confirm or deny, but uh, they get off the phone and they literally like leap out of, you know, their, their desks because based on, you know, Woodward's demeanor, they just know Murphy wants the interview or she wants to help with it. Of course, Frank will never let her do it. And she chases him down the hallway that she'll trade her Paul McCartney interview. He'll probably let you sing with him. <laughs> and then she offers a baseball card. And I, don't know who it is. It's Cubby something. And I'm sure there, I Googled it, but I can't figure out because I don't yeah, know I, as much about baseball, even though that's the one sport I know the most about. I Googled Cubby and baseball and it just was too vague. Fair. Because <laughs> I'm I'm in the city of the, the Cubs and a lot of people call them the Cubbies. Well, that's what happened. I yep. only got information on the Cubbies. We find ourselves in Phil's. Frank's approaching Phil at the bar and Frank, Phil wants to know what Frank wants today. And Frank says, a beer and some information. Now, I have to sing the praises of the performance. The performances mm. of Joe Rigobuto and Pat Corley in this scene, the level of drama that the two of them play, the caper that they create in this scene, mm -hmm. like Frank's reactions, Phil's intensity, they completely sell the humor of this scene and honestly the episode, but the level of like cloak and dagger intensity that's about to happen. Oh, it's great. It's so good. It just, the, the build up to the fall. Uh, so Frank says a beer 
dot, 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 and some information. And Phil is like, oh, it never stops. I mean, poor Phil, the nexus of all knowledge. Mm -hmm. He says, I just got off the phone with Ronald Reagan. He asked me, Phil, what do I know about Iran-Contra? And when when did I know it? Bless it. (laughs) But Frank says this is important. He needs to know about Deep Throat. And he says, there are only two people who know who he is, and you are one of them. Bum, bum, bum. Now I just had to step in and say, oh no, there was another person who knew who Deep Throat was. <gasps> oh, oh, now I and know the answer. Who was it, Lauren? <laughs> it was Nora Ephron. It was Nora Ephron. <laughs> Sorry, Yo. Jesse asked me this before we started recording, and I guessed a lot of wrong people. <laughs> I was like, you're going to know it. You're going to know it. Story. Oh, I forgot about this story. Oh, tell the story. It's the best. Y'all, did you know that for four years, the amazing Nora Ephron was married to Carl Bernstein? Jerk. Uh-huh. And I found this great article on Washington Post that said, Perhaps if Twitter had existed in those years, the matter would have been resolved sooner because there was someone who knew who Deep Throat was. Then that someone was A, a master of brevity and wit, B, married to Bernstein for a time, and C, eager to blab to anyone who would listen about Felt. And no one believed her. No one believed her. That someone was Nora Ephron, the filmmaker behind classic romantic comedies like When Harry Met Sally, Sleepless in Seattle, and You've Got Mail. God, I love her. This, I'm sorry, the right, well done, the Washington Post, Democracy Dies in Darkness. I have to read this to you. Efron was married to Bernstein for four years from 1976 to 1980. As she recounted later, Bernstein refused to reveal Deep Throat's identity to her. But she learned that before the Post managing director, Howard Simmons, gave the source the pornographic moniker Deep Throat, Woodward had referred to the source as MF in his notes. Woodward always insisted that stood for my friend, but Efron didn't believe him because she was a boss and correctly guessed the initial stood for Mark Felt. He denied it. And years later, Woodward admitted that using MF was a not very good tradecraft on my part. Now, for those of you who don't know, in 79, while Efron was pregnant with her and Bernstein's second child, she discovered her husband was having an affair with a mutual friend and they divorced. A few years later, she wrote a fictionalized version of the split in the novel Heartburn. (laughs) Yes. And she later wrote the screenplay for a film based on the book. Do you know that the, the book was listed in their divorce because mm-hmm. of Watergate? Mm-hmm. Should I tell this story? Please do. It's so good. In the book, the character based on her husband, Carl Bernstein, is named Mark Feldman. Uh-huh. <laughs> so when uh, they were getting a divorce and the movie was going to come out... In their negotiations, one, the movie had to depict him as being a good father, which I Mm -hmm. respect. I get that. But also, uh, they made uh, her change the name of the character for the movie. Mm -hmm. And that made some people go, huh, what's that about? Seems suspicious. Yeah. So in the movie, the character played by Jack Nicholson's name is Mark Foreman. Not that much different. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. When I found that out, I cackled with laughter. Oh, Nora, Mm -hmm. do we miss you? Just to finish this off, because I could talk about Nora Ephron forever. As her reputation for great movies and bluntness grew, she told hundreds of people the truth. Mm. Her kids, her friends, and rooms of adoring fans. Quote, if I gave a speech with 500 people and someone asked me, I told them. She told NPR in 2006. I told everyone, but no one listened to me. It was very, very, very frustrating. I was like a tree falling in the forest that no one hears. She later wrote, 
that she suffered in non-silence as unbelievably idiotic ideas of who Deep Throat was were floated by otherwise intelligent people. (laughs) And what I love is that her son, Jacob, apparently inherited his mother propensity for indiscretion and told classmates in grade school what he had overheard from his mom. In 99, the Hartford Current ran an article about a 19-year-old college student who claimed Jacob had told him felt was Deep Throat when the two attended a day camp together a decade earlier. Like, it was... I, y'all, it wasn't just Phil. Nora, Nora knew. Oh, I love it. It's just like such the best revenge. Right? Get it. I love you, you badass bitch. Phil says, he's sorry, but Woodward swore him to secrecy. And he says, it was a pinky pledge. How the hell do you break one of those? And Frank's reaction is like, oh, you're right. Like the way that Joe like looks away is just the subtext of like, I know it's too much. Uh, Like their drama is so good. And he says he has a name. All he needs is a confirmation. Phil doesn't even have to say yes or no. This is what we'll do. Frank says he will give him the name and then just start toward the door. If Phil doesn't stop Frank before he's out, he'll take that as confirmation. And Phil nods and like leans in. And they're so serious. Frank leans in and says, Deep Throat's name is Newton Green. Phil looks like he turned into a stone statue. He just stops moving. I was like, Has we ha- have we had a stroke? What is going on? Stone. And Frank says he's turning around. He's going to the door. Walking, 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 and out. And Phil releases his body with so much irritation. Like, Mm-mm-mm. it's, and then Frank bursts back and going, Phil, Phil, I was out. Did you say I was out? And then Phil in all, it can only be in all caps, says, yes, yes, I saw you were out. You were, you weren't in, you were out. I'm tired of this, Frank. And Frank leaves. Oh, it's such a great, it's, it's such a great moment. And Frank runs out the door and we just hear him cheering outside. And as his cheer is tailing off, we hear a very familiar whoop of laughter that takes over the sound from the other side of the bar from the bathroom. Yes, we do. Who could it be? Oh, it's Murphy who's been hiding in the bathroom area the whole time. And we've got that classic, like, full mouth Murphy laugh. She's like a Muppet. Yes, she's got her, I called her Kermit laugh, like the full open mouth Kermit laugh. And she's saying, it is the greatest practical joke of all time. Frank thinks my furnace man is deep throat. This is the best snow job since the Republicans nominated Quail. Ding. Okay, this is also one I have to call out. I'm so confused because my entire life, I've heard the emphasis be deep throat. But this entire episode has been deep throat. Huh. Okay. This is interesting. This is interesting because, and you may know this already, Jesse, mm-hmm. as a, a fan of linguistics, mm-hmm. um, this might be an example of sort of a stop plosive of words that are new to the vernacular. And I can only use hot dog as an example, because mm-hmm. this is the example that I had heard. Whereas when hot dog was first introduced into the vernacular, which would have been the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we have audio of it mm-hmm. that people said hot dog. Mm-hmm. That they em- they emphasized one word. And then mm-hmm. as the word became more familiar in the vernacular, it became hot dog. Mm-hmm. So maybe this is an example of these are people who were alive at the time when that word became a big part of the vernacular. We're not. So we know it as one sound and they know it as an emphasis on one other word. Does that make sense? I think so. I I have a couple of curiosities with it, which is the fact that much like hot dog, they are two words. But I'm wondering if it was an 
unintentional separation from the porno because the emphasis on oh. deep in deep throat is the fact that you're deep throating. Like that that yeah. it's the deep that that is the part that we're emphasizing. I'm just going to keep saying deep a lot until you know what I'm talking about. Um but I wonder if it would because it was a moniker, it's like emphasizing the last name. His first name is Deep and his last name is Throat. Throat. Yeah, it's Deep Throat. Instead of saying Gene Kinsella, it's saying Gene Kinsella. Yeah, no, I get that. Interesting. For the pornography, the emphasis would be on the descriptor. Well, now I want to go back and watch All the President's Men and Uh listen to how they say it. But moving on, uh, Phil does think that uh, perhaps their pranks have gotten out of hand. Yeah, just a little. And she says, no, she has to get him back from when he listed her house in the Washington Bed and Breakfast Guide. (laughs) I couldn't get rid of that German couple, Uh, which is one of my favorite lines that she specifically says in this episode, because it's just. Yeah, it's pretty good. It could be an unfunny read like I just did, or it could be really funny like she just like she read it. And well, Phil says he doesn't like being put in the middle. This bar is neutral territory. (laughs) But I was good, wasn't I? She says enough gloating. She better save some for when she tells Frank. She'll give it a day, give him time to decide whether Kevin Costner or Tom Cruise should play him in the movie. So here's my question. Okay. Who do you think, at the time, mm-hmm. would have played Frank in the movie? Because I don't think those are good choices. In 1990, uh, Goodfellas came out. So I was thinking like Pacino, De Niro, but particularly uh, Ray Liotta. Yeah, that was prime Ray Liotta. Do you think Frank sees himself as a Ray Liotta? No, he doesn't. But that's who I would cast. It's like there's a plethora of Italian actors in their prime mm-hmm. in 1990, mm-hmm. and yeah. he didn't pick any of them. I think it's I think that's very indicative of Frank. Yeah, and Frank's lack of awareness, self awareness, is that like he doesn't think of the actual people who could play him. He thinks of Kevin Costner and Tom. Oh Cruise. yeah, which is part of how Murphy is mocking him for it. She wants yeah. him to like have that lofty idea. It's part. It's funnier because they're terrible options, and he's wrong on both of them. Absolutely, and uh, awesome. And then we cut to. Murphy's townhouse the next day because Murphy is wearing a, pr- a pretty fabulous, you know, uh, I would say uh, casual for her. She's wearing that great mm-hmm. uh, brown suede jacket and this this red blouse that's sort of embroidered like she's a cowboy, actually, I would think. Right. Yeah. It's a little it's a little Western wear. Yeah. Very, very Western. Not bad. No, not bad at all. She always looks striking in red. And she literally says, Eldon, I'm home. Like, it's I Love Lucy. Eldon is pretty amazing in this scene. Mm-hmm. We've missed him a lot. He really hasn't been a big part of the season, I realized. We have not seen him in a long time. Yeah, because we still haven't done a sidebar on Robert Pasquarelli yeah. because there hasn't been a moment to talk about him. We will by the end of the mm-hmm. season. We'll figure it out. But I was like, oh, I missed you. Also, his outfit is fantastic. He's got a, we don't talk about his clothes as much. Yeah. He's got the black shirt with these sort of orange globs on them. Very artistic. Mm-hmm. But the reason that Murphy is so happy is that she got parking for free on someone else's hey. quarter. And she is in the middle of the biggest, greatest prank on Frank ever. And she's going to order them pizza. Oh, I also wrote that with the red, she's like a matador. She's just yeah. so, like ready to fight. I mean, fight. it's her power color. Eldon, although excited about her change in mood, is concerned that she recently had a blow to the head. <laughs> and then the doorbell rings and she goes to get it and she tells Eldon to order the pizza. And then in, in one of the best deadpan deliveries he's ever done, he goes, oh, domestic bliss, I've dreamed of this. <laughs> and it's, it's I can't even give it justice. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's, it's so muck. good. So, of course, it's Frank. Uh, Frank has been out all day. He's so excited. He's been doing background research. And he just needed to tell her that 
they can't have dinner because he's really got to work on this. And she's just loving it. She's so evil. She's just loving. She wants to hear more about how excited he is. At one point, Frank just puts his hand up and goes, the downfall of a president. (laughs) He's like so overly dramatic. And he lets it slip to her that he's also had to cancel his interview with Noriega. uh, And he gave it to Dan Rather. And that's when Murphy knows that she done f***ed up. Yeah, her face. (laughs) All the blood in her face just needs to to go out because she, as she reminds him, he worked very hard and very long to set up that interview and he was so excited about it. And he says, well, why why would I do the story of the year when when I'm about to do the story of the decade, the story of the century? And Murphy pleads with him, pleads with him, you know, that the story is old. She goes, Nixon lives in New Jersey. Yeah, I guess, you know, that's where, where the depths of, of society goes. Being from Jersey, I can say that. That's right. Frank has to go. He needs to run off to a, a photo shoot in front of the White House, leaving Murphy quite upset. Cut to the next day, Murphy is in her office. She's on the phone with Dan Rather, trying to bribe him to get that story back for Frank. And she feels that he's being unreasonable. She offered him, she said, orchestra seats. So I'm assuming it's probably for music. Yeah. A lot of really great music in D.C. A timeshare in Aspen. Uh, But she is being accused of being extremely unreasonable. She does not agree. And he hangs up on her. Dang. She looks at the phone and goes, your wife fantasizes about Peter Jennings, which Uh, is pretty great. Yeah. Uh, If anyone didn't know, he was a gym-like looking anchor from ABC. Oh, Peter Jennings. Also, by the way, if you're not following Dan Rather on Twitter, you should. Uh, You absolutely should. Also, sidebar, I know his cousin. Um, Yeah. One of my mom's best friends. And also... uh, Peter Jennings, very Jim Dial-like. Very. Uh, also will forever be, you know, those, you know, pretty much all of us now have a moment where it's like, I will never forget the day blank happened. It was JFK for some. It was, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. For us, uh, it's most likely 9-11. That, like, first thing that kind of happened like that. And for me, Peter Jennings will always be synonymous with that day. Oh, interesting. I remember that was, like, one of the channels that we got. And so I will never, like, that is the face that I remember talking to me about it. Uh, Now, Frank walks in, fabulous gray suit, black pants, I think, right? Yeah. And a black and white tie, which I love, and a matching pocket square. But the tie, particularly, makes it look like Frank is in a high school production of Guys and Dolls. Definitely. Yes. And he's uh, showing Murphy's outfit. He's posing, you know, because he, of course, Time, Newsweek, GQ is going to want him for the cover. Um, But then he gets insecure about the pocket square and says something that is, I think, a little offensive is he uses the word sissy Uh to mean, I assume, unmasculine. Yeah. About the pocket square. Feminine, girly. Yeah, um, but sissy is, you know, has a connotation to it that is used in certain contexts. Yep. It was interesting because I, I can see it, it being used at that time. Oh, yeah, it was very commonly used It was very used jarring. At the time. Yeah. Because I hadn't heard it in so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, at the yeah, time, so. that was not enough. I mean, it was definitely, we eventually found out that it was offensive for a lot of people to hear and caused a lot of uh, internalized misogyny. But at the time, that would not have been an offensive word to write. So Murphy really feels like she needs to confess to Frank. She has him sit down. She says that she's going to tell him something that it, that she thought would be a really happy thing, a pleasurable thing for her to tell him, something she'd tell her grandkids. She confesses that uh, the whole thing was a joke. And 
there is no deep throat. And Frank's face just, like, falls like a little child, and he goes, why? Why? It was a joke, and he's just devastated. So Murphy just says to him, you know, let me have it. Give me your worst. And Frank actually does worse than letting her have it. He just gets up, walks to the door, shakes his head, and leaves. It's the worst. Now, quickly before we go to the next moment, which is going to be continuous, let's talk about the dartboard for a moment. Indeed, we have a very noticeable dartboard. It does. It says, this space is reserved for C. Chung. And I think that the assumption is, is that Murphy stole it from Connie Chung's parking space. Now, to remind people, mm -hmm. already in season one, we had Connie Chung on the show appearing as herself and something that I wanted to sort of give people a sense of like what was going on because we did talk about the breadth of Connie Chung's career. This was at the beginning of her uh, coming to CBS. She's still there. She has not started hosting the evening news yet, but she does have a Sunday program, uh, which actually I fell down a hole in because I found all of these celebrity interviews <laughs> and I was like, oh, she interviewed Bette Midler in 1990. Let me spend 45 minutes yes, watching did. this. Oh, God, she's wearing the Beaches wig. I'm so excited. I love that wig. Uh, oh, but I so also good. wanted to give you a little sort of update about what was going on at the time and a little perspective as well that I found out that we didn't get to talk about. For one, this could also have been a way to send support to Connie Chung, as well as, you know, making a joke on Murphy's sake, because this was in April. They probably filmed it in March. And in March 1990, uh, I won't even say his name to give him credit, but a conservative uh, talk show host spoke about Connie Chung. I didn't even know about this and used a racial slur uh, as mm. a, I don't know how to explain it, I guess, but uh, to make fun of her name in a way that he claimed was not racist yep. at all. That's all. Yeah. Really actually quite gross when I read it. So this so may have gross. been, we don't know, could have been a show of support for Connie having been on the show and being a part of CBS and being one of the rare women who did news at the time. Mm -hmm. But something I also found that was interesting that in 2018, she was on Andy Cohen and he asked her if she'd ever been sexually harassed in her career. And she said, yeah, every day. Let me set the record for anybody that sexually harassed me is now dead. Yeah. <laughs> so that was interesting. Her show at the time, her Sunday show, was getting some blowback because they were doing reenactments. And I found some articles from the spring of 1990 where she defended that by saying that they were always clear that they were actors. They were trying something new. They were not mm -hmm. pretending that it was real. And then also, it, many people may have seen her recently playing herself on The Undoing yeah. on HBO. That was really cool to see. Yeah. Yeah. And then I found a picture of Connie Chung and Nixon that I put in the little box for you if you want to check out. <laughs> I saw that. I thought it was great. I was like, whoa. I was like, well, that's appropriate. What an appropriate photo for this episode. So before we follow Frank further into the bullpen as he walks by, Linda, the secretary, uh, is on the phone and so, for once sounds a little confident. And she's like, one moment, Mrs. Thatcher. <laughs> Oops. And then we just see what is clearly her losing the call. What Leela does as an actress is she's tapping buttons with her finger, but it's with the energy of like a chicken pecking. Like she's just tapping on the receiver and on buttons, trying to make something work and clearly losing any call she may have had. Oh, yeah. But we continue with Frank. Frank walks to pour himself some coffee dejectedly. And Murphy is desperate. She, can we just talk about this, please? Jim and Corky are standing there in the uh, the coffee area, uh, rocking their signature mugs, by mm. the way. We got the pink it's, mug for it's Corky. A big mug and episode. the uh, 
yeah, the, the fish sea mug for Jim. And clearly they want to know what's wrong. Murphy explains that there was just uh, that he doesn't have deep throat. It was a practical joke. A and then she turns to Frank's back. Frank has sat down at the table in front of the coffee area. It says, a dumb, idiotic gag, and it backfired. And Frank, I'm sorry. And this is when Jim swoops in. This is one of my favorite elements, obviously anything with Jim, but it's one of my favorite elements of this episode is the Jim and Corky team up that happens in the background of this oh, episode. Oh, it's great. And it's so rare. It's so rare. And I love that they're teamed up in this moment uh, throughout the episode, actually. And he says, and Jim says, oh, you're sorry? Well, I'm sick of these childish pranks. I thought you might have learned something after poor, or actually, I just have to say, wonderful, classically trained Charlie Kimbrough says, after poor Earl. Not poor, like many of us say, after poor Earl. <laughs> and I was just like, yay, good job, bud. He says, I thought you might have learned something after poor Earl in the mailroom lost his eyebrows. And Murphy, we just got to Murphy, and she's clearly holding in a smirk. And Corky goes, it's awful. Now when he's surprised, nobody can tell. That is like a ripple of a brilliant joke. Oh, my God. The joke gets such a long laugh that just people people get it. And then people, then you hear it, the new people get it. And then the people who yeah. got it the first time, you hear them still laughing about it. And then they're laughing because the other people who got it and now they're get laughing. it. And it's so stupid, but it's so funny. It's like, it's, it's, it's a wave joke. It's just like riding. It's a lot gold medal surfer. I can't. I just keep giggling. It's such a solid oh, so joke. Good. It's and so also, stupid. It's so funny. It's so stupid, but Faith commits to it. She's so Ooh, upset that Earl. Like, no one knows when he's surprised. Nobody oh, can tell. It's fantastic. so. It's just. It's perfect, simple writing that is so silly, and it's given to the perfect character to say it. And it's just. Oh, well done, team. And, and I just love it. Yeah, as they're continuing to talk, people are still catching up on this joke. And Murphy turns to Frank and she says she blew it and she knows that. She'll never pull a thing on him like this again. She promises. And then Frank just goes, swear it. And what I love is that Murphy immediately takes that and she goes, okay, I will. And she steps into the center of the bullpen and she addresses the staff and she says, you're all my witnesses. I will never pull another stunt on Frank Fontana again. I swear it. And with like not even half a second, Frank leaps out, practically leaps out of his chair and starts mocking her final three words and her tone with, I swear it, I swear it, I swear it. And then he just dissolves into giggles. And these two in this moment are so obnoxious. Oh, so like, obnoxious. It's so, per you get why everyone's pissed at them. And Murphy starts at shock and then she goes, you knew, you knew and you let me suffer. And they start batting at each other like children slash kittens. Like she's just smacking him. He's smacking her. And Jim is over it. And he says, oh, for the love of Mike, what's next? Soaping the windows at the Pentagon and leaves. <laughs> And Corky just goes, you babies, and also leaves. Now, do you remember what soaping is? I do, but I haven't thought about it in years. Right? I heard, He said that. I was like, oh, right. What a harmless prank. It's very annoying, but like that was one of the ones where I remember growing up, like people would be really upset if you did, uh, if you like TP'd someone's house, but like if you soaped it, a window, like it's annoying, but it's fine. Yeah, um, I mean, I never saw it done in person. Oh, they definitely got bored in my hometown. <laughs> so Murphy wanted to know when he knew. He said, oh, he found out right away. Two phone calls and he was on to her. Now, there was a Newton Green at the Nixon White House, but, quote, he found God in 75 and is now raising turnips in a commune outside Santa Fe. 
Uh, and he says, don't get down on yourself. I was just returning your serve, which is something I love. I love that idea that it's just. Yeah. This like, is their hey, game. You gave me a good, you gave me a good pass. I'm giving you another one. Uh, so they call a ceasefire and they shake hands in truce. But at that moment, Miles arrives at the elevator and he goes, there you go, Frankie, my man, my guy. And he says he was just in Kinsella's office and they were talking about his deep throat story. And this wonderful moment of the color draining out of Frank's face. Now, also, we need to call out the fact that this has happened now twice with it's happened once with Candace and once with Joe. Y'all, it, it takes a really good actor to actually make the color drain out of your face. Like that is an actual physical reaction to um, mm -hmm. an emotional moment. You can't just make some, like not everyone can just do that on cue. Like they're that good of actors. Like just note if that happens to somebody on camera, they're that good of actors. Don't take that for granted. So the color drains out of Frank's face. And he goes, you told Kinsella? Miles says, yeah, he even did a little dance. And Grant Shaw, ladies and gentlemen, does the best little like knee dance. And then just moves on. It's so good. And he said Kinsella was so excited he called New York. They went nuts. Major ad campaign. Total media blitz. And then he hugs Frank from the back and goes, Franco, we are hot. We are scoring major points with the boys upstairs. And this amazing shot of Miles gripping him from behind in a bear hug and Frank's terrified face. And Murphy just goes, you went to Miles with the gag? What happened, Sherlock? I thought you saw it right away. And this amazing physical moment of Frank stepping forward to her, but pulling Miles along by Grant's toes. <laughs> and he goes, okay, so it took a little while. And Miles, from, his, from Frank's shoulder, just goes, guys, I'm hearing words I don't like. Words like gag and saw through it and bad words. <laughs> Murphy shares that Miles, that the deep throat story is bogus. She set it up to get Frank. And Frank and Miles looks at Frank and says, but you said you had confirmation. You said you had a story. And Frank says, I said, I thought I had confirmation. I said we had to proceed carefully. And Miles points out that, sure, he said that, but he also said it while jumping up and down in Miles' office, singing the theme to Chariots of Fire and storms away. <laughs> Murphy follows him to the and follows him to the elevator and says, hey, Gene Kinsella has a great sense of humor, probably. And Miles says, great, he'll just go tell him the hilarious news. Maybe he'll share it with Rune Aldridge. He called at 3 a.m. to say that they were going to kick NBC's butt at the Emmys. And then Miles proceeds to say, we were just on a conference call to New York. I was chatting with the chairman of the board. He invited me to drinks this summer on his yacht, the SS40 share. <laughs> and he does this like hand throw down and stomps petulantly into the elevator. He says, I was going to have my own cabin. He called me Miles Superberg. <laughs> It's such a great pout. Oh, Grant. Grant. And the doors shut on sad, sad miles. Hmm. And we cut to what is, I would say, approximately a couple hours later. And the doors reopen on a shell-shocked miles. And he walks in and everyone's gathered in the bullpen. And they all rush to ask what happened. Miles says they all yelled at him. Shepard, Coffer, Razkoff, everyone with the corner office came in to yell at me. Then they asked me to leave the room. They had to discuss the matter privately. And everyone winces away with an ooh. And Frank and Murphy are trying to help. And so they say, you know, it probably doesn't mean anything. They're just testing to see if you could take the pressure. Yeah, right. And he says, and how am I doing? And Frank and Murphy look very nervously at each other. And Frank does this great, like, he suddenly is in, like, dad talking to scared child mode. He goes, hey, you, you're doing just fine, buddy. 
and then just cries, Miles, and throws himself on him to hug him. <laughs> and Gene Kinsella arrives. I was so delighted Gene. to see Gene. I know. It was, it was great to have him also because usually he doesn't have such a storyline. I mean, he was in the yes. last half of the episode, but like with the gang, he's always sort of off in, in another storyline of his own, really. Yeah. Well, and also like something's going to happen in a little while when uh, when you're speaking is that we get to see Gene lighten up a little bit. Oh. That's what I'll say. Uh, but I'll save that for you. So he says he supposes his visit is a, a complete surprise. And Murphy goes, so Gene, I guess we goofed. It's very interesting to see Murphy kind of try to take the bullet. And Gene says he wants to speak to Miles privately, but Miles says, no, these are his people. They're like family. Anything Gene has to say, he can say in front of them. Gene goes, well, okay. Silverberg, we're terminating your contract. And everyone is agog. And Corky oh. goes, no, you can't. And throws herself into Jim's arms. <laughs> These two are such a great duo. We need more. Doesn't Jim say, oh, dear Lord, or something? Yes. Oh, yeah. All of them have these over-the-top oh, reactions. It's so great. No, you can't. Like, it's so good. And Miles has like his he his face in his hands. Everyone mm. is so dramatic. And Gene says that he wants them all to understand he didn't they didn't make the decision easily. But the executive committee believes that this sort of public embarrassment is a symptom of immature leadership. Mm. Now we took a chance with Silverberg when we hired him, but this is a tough business and there is no margin for error. Sorry, one of my favorite things is that Alan Hoppenheimer in this moment said doesn't say no margin for error. He says no margin for error. It gets very like New Jersey Jewish in a moment, and it's wonderful. And he says that Miles has until the end of tomorrow to pack up his office. And Corky, as he's walking back to the elevator, which we know later is like, Corky is really playing into this moment. But she just goes, do something. Just whispers, whimpers it desperately to them. And Murphy and Frank are running off as Corky hugs Miles where he stands. And Murphy and Frank are running after Gene saying, it's not it's not Miles's fault, it's theirs. And Murphy says, well, if anyone should be fired, it's us. And Frank shoves her from behind and says, or severely reprimanded. <laughs> and Gene steps into the elevator and says, I can't fire you two. Your talent. The network's bread and butter. But somebody has to pay the piper. I'm sorry. And the doors close. They're all really good actors. I just want to say, so considering good. that they're not professionals and later on particularly Murphy, not a good actor. They're so good. And like all of them are so good at the Sutterfuge. So good. So next uh, we are uh, back in the bullpen. It's most likely the next day. Miles walks in with his little box of stuff. <laughs> and uh, Murphy's secretary is uh, picking up a bunch of things, uh, cassette tapes, notebooks. And oddly enough, is dressed like Candace Bergen in real life at the time. Yes. Yes. I, I don't know if they just threw Candace's clothes on her or Candace eventually just took some of that stuff I mean, from the costume uh, area. Um, I mean, the belt is not her belt that we've seen her wear a million times. It looks very close to her belt. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe that was, I mean, my aunt used to dress like that a lot in the 90s, this sort of, you know, Arizona chic yeah. kind of a thing, you know, with lots of turquoise and mm -hmm. flowy skirts and big sweaters and belts. So... That could be it, but it really took my attention where I was like, mm -hmm. I've literally seen her wear this in a behind the scenes shot. Yep. Uh, so the secretary, Linda, isn't sure if Murphy is 15 blocks away and she'll be here in a few minutes or a few blocks away and she'll be here in 15 minutes. You know, either or. Either or. So uh, Jean 
enters off the elevator and very, very sort of cordial with Miles, like, what are you doing here? Blah, 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 blah. And then we find out that the two of them are in cahoots. Gene thinks that Silverberg is a genius for coming up with it. They sort of roughhouse a bit like, yeah. you know, old pals, you know, and it's like, shh, oh, shush, shush, but yeah, no one needs to know. Like anyone's really watching them. They're so giggly. It's so nice to see Gene this way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, he wonders when, you know, Miles is going to tell them. And he said, well, he, he thinks he's going to wait until they walk him to his car. You know, he might actually drive away. He He's practiced a backwards wave. <laughs> so weird. Then uh, Frank and Murphy get off the elevator, you know, and they get back to being, you know, adversaries. Oh, mm. Miles, you're bad. Take yourself and get out of here. Uh, how dare you ask for a letter of reference? And then Jean leaves. And Murphy and Frank want to say something. They they ask Jim and Corky to come over and join them. And they want Miles to know that they they have written an open letter to the Wall Street Journal, which they are holding in front of them, the, the newspaper. To which, of course, Miles goes, oh, in the letter, which Murphy starts to read, they are directly sending this letter to journalists saying that substance has become more important in broadcast journalism. Miles grabs it just in time to read that they are calling the hires up narcissists mm -hmm. and it is no longer about the quality of work. Miles is freaking out. He says that it was a joke that he overheard Frank telling Dan Rather how he was going to get back at Murphy. Frank freaks out. Murphy asks Miles to sit down because she says that it actually gets mm. worse. And then they show the other side of the newspaper, which says Silverberg duped. <laughs> and they all laugh. Well, I should say Murphy and Frank laugh. Not only do they laugh and mock him, they throw their stuff on him as he's on the ground, including Murphy's bag and then like all the pencils from her desk. That's my favorite part. And it's so childish. <laughs> it's very childish. It. It's it's a. Uh, you know, M Murphy says that he's lucky they didn't steal his milk money. <laughs> and Jim is so mad. He says he wishes there was a barn. He swear I'll take you behind the barn and tan your, your behinds. What is behinds. Tan your behinds. Corky says that they are like a bad pair of shoes and she doesn't know why. <laughs> I don't know how, but you are. <laughs> I could think a bad, a bad pair of shoes doesn't give support. Doesn't give support. It's annoying. It like uncomfortable. It, just, it rubs you the wrong Ooh, way. Yeah, you know, like so not many, stylish, you know? immature. Yep. And then Murphy's secretary approaches and asks where Murphy wants to, her to do with the copy of the letter to the Wall Street Journal, and and Murphy is confused. Um, and the secretary explains that she found the letter on Murphy's desk, and so she figured that she would you know mail it to her, and it's it's out to first thing with the mail. Of course, they run to the elevator, which is a really great moment. Mur Murphy is really mm -hmm. physical. It's Again, a lot of this stuff is, I think, just classic Murphy Brown. Uh, and they have to run mm -hmm. to get to the elevator. As, and as soon as they're on the elevator, Corky and Jim let their facade go. And they go, oh, they fell for it. <laughs> I, I've decided that this ending is like a Russian nesting doll. It is. It absolutely is. Uh, Jim compares them to lemmings in the sea, which is such a great reference. So good. He could almost feel sorry for them. And Corky tells the, the secretary, oh, she did such a good job. She was so good and convincing. And the secretary is confused. Didn't you want me to send it? Because it's on the truck right now. And then they run to the elevator. Corky yells for them to go to the stairs. Jim is screaming how it's her fault. Uh, he never wanted to do this as they're out and cleared. And we hear them yelling at each other. And then Linda, the secretary, 
yells, morons, laughs and rips the paper in half. The evil laugh that she does, the like cartoonish evil laugh, like, man, justice for the secretaries. So, so the, good. So the, was this whole thing just like um, a big ruse by the secretary to just not do any work, just be bad at her job? I love it. It's it's a it's a long con. It's a long con, and you know what? I'm into it. I like to. I like rewatching this, thinking that she's just there messing with people the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I when I was a temp, I never wanted to be at a place for too long because then mm-hmm. they would figure out I wasn't very good. Because again, not really wanting to do temp work, and that was always the best too because you could be like, oh, I don't know where that is. And because you're only there for two weeks, it didn't make sense for them to like show you where that was. Yep. And so I I got out of a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'll just get it for you. Oh, okay, cool. I think really quickly, we didn't mention uh, Leela Ivy, who plays Secretary 33, also one of those faces that you see a lot. I think I remember the most as the bank teller in Big. Same. And also her, uh, there were two for me. It, there was the bank tower, which I was like, oh, that's, I think, the first thing. For me, there was also Pleasantville and In the Addams Family, which were two movies that I knew very well growing up. Also, shocking no one, she was in two episodes of Murder, She Wrote. And Golden Girls and Empty Nest uh, and Quantum Leap. And um, she was on a show that I used to watch, but I was so young when I watched it. I didn't, I don't really know who she played, but I used to love a show called Homefront. Oh, I remember that name. Two seasons. It was one of those shows that was always part of TV Guide's, you know, Save Our mm-hmm. Show's SOS campaign along with Quantum mm-hmm. Leap. Um, and it was about the home front after World War II. Oh. Mimi Kennedy was in it. It's the first time I ever saw her. She played sort of this rich mother whose son had died in the war. And then this, he had a war bride who was Italian. So they were kind of racist towards her, but she'd had a baby. So they had to take care of her and they learned to love her. Mm-hmm. Kyle Chandler from Kyle uh, Chandler. Friday, Friday Night Lights was the lead. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was a really great show. I it was really sad that it got canceled, but I think it was so specific. There was like a radio station in it at some point, and oh, it was beautiful. Oh, um, uh, you know who's also in that show from Mad Men? Um, John Slattery. Oh, love that man. He played this uh, new guy in town who married a widow and was really mm-hmm. into like communism and stuff. Yeah, like you are. Yeah, you know, it was the forties. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So that's. That's Frank Atkin. I did it the first time, and now it's gone gone to history. You only get one. I only get one. So, hey, are you following us on social media? Did you know that we have a Patreon, which is the only reason that we've been able to pay for this episode to be produced? Yes. It goes somewhere, and we really appreciate it. Um, You can find all of that information on murphybrownpod.com. Yeah, and... If you can't be a member, we totally understand. If you just want to give a one-time donation, we also know either. You can also help us out by dropping us a review, which is free. We love them. Reviews and and five-star ratings is how uh, the podcast gets boosted uh, so others can find it. Uh, so that is, um, if you want a free way to support us, that is the the easiest and most effective way to support us. And we'll see you for the next episode for our interview with Norm. Oh, I hope you love it. And we'll see you next time. For another edition of FYI. The Murphy Brown Podcast. Do you want me to change it? (laughs) No. I'm sure Nebraska's lovely this time of year. Yes, I want you to change it.